Today is the 15th of November, 2014, and this is episode 162. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. This is Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thank you for joining us. We are at the tail end of a long marathon recording session, but we're still so excited to be here because we still have things to talk about. I am Stephanie, and with me is Adam. Hello. Andreas. Hey. And our special guest, Pamela from Empowered Law. Hello, Adam, Stephanie, and thank you for having me on the show. Adam has been talking now for a year and a half about horrible warnings. Let these horrible warnings be lessons. If you can't make something be a glowing success, make it a horrible warning. And this industry is absolutely full of them. Let's uh, roll back to the summer of 2014, a few months ago, and some stirring started happening in the Doge community. A couple of very highly placed people in Doge started blowing the whistle and very publicly accusing... um, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Was it a Doge whistle? (laughs) could only certain people hear it (laughs) well apparently stephanie only some people could hear it and there were some anonymous accusations but there were also some very eponymous people who resigned from the dogecoin foundation at the time because of potential or probable or suspected malfeasance embezzlement and money problems in one of the biggest organizations in the Doge community, which is Moolah. And Moolah.io, for those of you who don't know, is uh, Doge's largest exchange and also behind much of the fundraising successes that Doge has had for very high-profile projects, including the Dogecoin NASCAR-sponsored ACE. So there were some accusations, and there were some whistleblowers who came in anonymously and said that the leader of Moolah, a guy by the name supposedly of Alex Green, was not who he said he was, and in fact was using an alias and was not handling the money in Moolah.io properly. This week, Ben Dornberg and Jackson Palmer came out with a public statement about Moolah.io identifying that Alex Green, a.k.a. Ryan Gentle, a.k.a. Ryan Kennedy, a.k.a. a bunch of other things, including his OTC Web of Trusts handle, if you like, which is Lemon. So five, six different names there. This person is a known scammer who has now basically taken money from multiple businesses and ran away with that money and is a serial scam on the internet with a 10-year history of building up uh, various scams and then running away with the money. They were able to find many photos and documentation showing that this Alex Green, supposedly the leader of Moolah.io, has run away with thousands of Bitcoins and that the entire thing is a scam. Today, the CEO of Moolah.io announced his resignation, uh, probably because people were being mean to him 
and now we'll run away with all the money, most likely. This is a this is a theme that has been repeated again and again, and you see certain similarities. First of all, when there are accusations, you see this immediate, very defensive posture, and people attack the messenger. When when people started speaking out about uh, Mullah IO and the possibility that there were some bad dealings going on there back in the summertime. You should have seen the reaction. The, the community as a whole uh, really attacked the people who were making these um, these accusations and said that mm. uh, they were trying to destroy one of the most successful companies in the space and they weren't grateful enough for all the wonderful things that Alex Green had done for Dogecoin. Turns out, it, it appears now, that they, they were right. In fact, that these whistleblowers uh, had seen the truth and were trying to warn the community from applying more money into uh, these companies that were badly managed at best and uh, giant scams at worst. So uh, wow. that story well, repeats. Yeah, I'm just thinking back to you. Uh, one time when I questioned on a show that, you know, whether the Doge fundraiser was legit or real, a bunch of people sent me some nasty emails. And that's just obviously a very tiny, like, fraction of what must have happened to these other whistleblowers who were talking about moolah.io. Uh, it's really interesting. I mean, so when that happens, either the people who are calling out the messengers or the whistleblowers have a vested interest in the scam or they really, really don't want to be wrong and don't want to admit that they got scammed. Well, I think that I mean that's a really key takeaway from all of this stuff is that you know Bitcoin and cryptocurrency it doesn't really matter if it's Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. It's not either of those things. It's opportunity attracts opportunists, and scammers are just opportunists who you know are willing to break the rules and willing to break willing to break social taboos in order to further improve their bottom line versus not doing that. So I mean, like that seems to be the the core thing here is that. During this early phase, and again, like it's that, it's that Wild West phase, right? Where there's no, not even the perception of regulation. So if you're a scammer, this seems like it probably would be a good place. You know, like I bet that, uh, Butterfly Labs probably thought they were really, you know, they were in good shape because they were taking Bitcoin at a time when nobody considered Bitcoin money. So they would, they were very limited in what they could, what could happen to them. Yeah, and uh, you see a lot of the same kind of things going on in the background, uh, using company funds for personal use, uh, misappropriation of funds, commingling, diversion, and various other uh, terms of law that I'm sure uh, Pamela Morgan will be able to explain to us. And all of these things happen again and again and again. And, and the funny thing is people don't want to believe. They don't want to believe that uh, some of the people that they have considered heroes in the industry are in fact uh, scammers. So it, it hurts to really go after this story and talk about this because of course, if you don't talk about this, then, then you're responsible. Uh, and I've had that edge of the sword too, right? Which is um, when I said after, after calling Carpellis uh, incompetent, uh, and grossly incompetence uh, so many times for so many months and warning people not to put their money in Gox. I was then accused for not being harsh enough because I said incompetent and not uh, criminal. So that was somehow an endorsement. So it's a double-edged sword. If you say too much, then you're attacked as the messenger because people don't like the fact that you're calling their hero scammers. If you don't say enough, then uh, you are obviously shilling for that company. And there's a golden line in between. 
Well, you, you, you have to follow your own voice, but I wonder if this actually points to a larger problem because now we've had the technology certainly to demand greater transparency transparency and accountability from exchanges in particular, and just any kind of Bitcoin company, you know, you can use multi-signature addresses and you can view public balances on the blockchain. And like these things are easily solvable with technology, but either people don't demand that accountability or companies don't want to provide it. And they, you know, just nobody wants to provide it. So there's no one really offering that superior level of transparency. So um, maybe this is why I'm sorry. Maybe this is why like boycotts don't tend to work sometimes too. I mean, a lot of people know that Walmart treats its employees pretty terribly or Amazon, you know, but they still shop there because they're getting, you know, they think they're getting a good deal or they ignore the facts or or whatever, even if they're aware of them. We pass the slavings on to you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I find um, with a lot of businesses in this community, we get really excited about um, the ideals and what could be. And so many people want to rush by um, these sort of mundane, boring, legal things. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned a moment ago, Stephanie, uh, multisig has been around for a, a year and many of my clients implement it within an hour. Um, if you have a full signature plan where you have division of duties, it might take a week tops. And that includes having board meetings, making sure everyone's on the same page, putting uh, email um, strings in place, and so on and so forth. So, you know, the idea that it's this huge, onerous, big problem, and it takes tons of time, and, you know, it's taking focus away from doing what we really want to do, which is change the world. Um, it's kind of a misnomer. It's not really true. Uh, have, have you all set up multi-signature accounts? I know you have, uh, yes. Andreas. Yeah, I, I have too. And, I have not. and you have not. Uh oh. I have Adam. not. No. We need to chat, my friend. <laughs> well, obviously. Um, yeah. So, Stephanie, how, what was the experience like for you? It was easier than I thought. You know, um, if you want to be ultra paranoid and do it really securely on offline computers, you can certainly do that. Armory has a great tutorial about how to do that on their website. It does take a little bit longer to do that than to just use, for instance, copay.io's web wallet to make a multi-sig. But just, I mean, do yourself a favor. If you're listening to this and haven't played around with multi-sig wallets, just create one and see how easy it is because it's really freaking easy. And you can actually have so much flexibility to um, you know, manage organizations where more than one person needs to have access or control to funds, or even like a you know between a, a you know domestic partners or spouses or whatever, uh, like a joint account or something like that. There's there's really no limit to what you can do with it, and it is super easy. And there's no reason not to. There's no reason. There's no not reason to. not to. Yeah, I agree. Here's the interesting conundrum: if uh, setting up offline signing is very difficult for you. Uh, then you're using online signing. And then you most definitely shouldn't be using a single sign address. Because at that point, (laughs) online signing of multisig will already be orders of magnitude more secure than what you're doing. So the offline versus online signing is a whole different layer. If you can do it, great. Do it for your single sign address, at which point you can easily do it for the multisig. If you can't do it for your single sign address, then you should be doing multisig with online signing because that will be orders of magnitude more secure. And, you know, really a single signed address with online signing and a web wallet, that is the worst possible scenario. And to ask investors to put their money into that kind of system 
in this day and age when you're supposedly running a technology company that is that has expertise in this space well that's just embarrassing i mean investors should demand this stuff from the get-go as absolutely basic and even if you don't think of yourself as an, as an investor if you're investing quote unquote in a crowd sale you're an investor and you should be demanding this from the companies that you are giving your money to or your bitcoin to or whatever it is that you're giving now, on that note, I saw that uh, recently the BitShares Note, or the, is that what it's called, Stephanie? I, I can't recall, BitMusic, BitTune, something like that? Oh, yeah, BitShares Music. BitShares Music, okay. So BitShares Music has a fundraiser going on right now that uses a multi-sig address. And one of the things that I noticed was that you can actually not send to a multi-sig address from either Counterparty's wallet or from uh, CryptoKit's wallet. So both of those, they show up as invalid accounts. Now, I, this is obviously a short-term problem because it's you know these addresses haven't really been in common use uh, until somewhat recently, so it'll get updated. But it's not an instant process, and it actually is, I think, having detrimental impacts because these are highly used wallets these days. Yeah, but if someone has the savvy to figure out that that they should be demanding that the company they're going to invest in is using a multi-sig address... They should be able to figure out how to download another Bitcoin wallet that supports sending to multi-sig addresses, right? Or yeah, I'm not, I'm not arguing that this right? shouldn't be a requirement or that people shouldn't expect this. I'm just noting that right now, trying to use it with two of the, I mean, the two wallets that I mm -hmm. use, find myself using most often, I could not even send to an address. So I, again, I assume it'll be And, and who right are now they again, Adam? Which wallets are these? That's CryptoKit and CounterWallet.co. Neither of them recognize uh, addresses that have the three prefix as valid. Shout out to both. Please integrate soon. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> it's been a year. You can do it. We know you can. Yeah, and that problem will over time, but maybe it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing because as more people start to use multi-sig addresses and get comfortable with them, wallets will have to integrate multi-sig totally. support in order to stay relevant. Yeah, absolutely. This is totally a short-term problem. I'm just saying, like, I mean, you know, none of this stuff happens instantly. It's just the nature of these decentralized environments. When an innovation comes out, it really requires people to use it and requires, like, there, it, it, there is that chicken-egg problem. You need people to use it before it makes sense for the other open-source participants in the ecosystem to really take it seriously and, and devote resources to it. Sure, but this is one of the areas that we, you know, constantly struggle with in, in Bitcoin, you know, as we're talking to the mainstream people or people who are new users, as far as I'm concerned, I'm concerned with, are they going to misplace their key? Are they going to have an issue with later? And so I usually try to set them up with a wallet that has multi-sig so that if they're not too sure, maybe we can have someone else who's a more advanced user be one of their signers where they can't really run off with the money, but where they can help them. And so I think that as a basic security premise, we'll be moving towards integrating multi-sig in all wallets and all transactions, hopefully sooner rather than later. Well, and Pamela, you're, I mean, like, this is, a, this is obviously an area of great interest to you, you know, based on like, now you think this is the time that pervasive multi-sig adoption should happen, that the technology is there, that it's not going to be unusable for people who, I mean, like, obviously, we're not talking about very, very basic users, but like a normal Bitcoin user, this technology is to that point? I believe it is. I mean, as Stephanie mentioned earlier, if you want to get into offline key generation and offline signing, that requires a little bit more expertise. But if you're doing a simple hot multi-sig wallet, uh, it's really not that complex at all. And there are a number of companies that have how-to guides. I have one on my website that involves 
offline signing. So if you want to learn how to do that, it's free. You're welcome to, to take a look at it. But there are a number of companies that have videos and, and um, article explanations on how to do this. And I think that, you know, as we move to holding larger and larger amounts of crypto, we start to think about cold storage. We start to think about multi-sig. And since security is such a big issue, I think it's almost neglect not to, especially in a corporate environment. You know, if you're asking for money from the general public, I think it's negligent not to have a multi-signature address or have at least some sort of corporate governance best practices that you can share with those people that you're asking to invest. Even if you're raising a small amount, like thirty or forty thousand dollars, to say you know just a, a really small amount, and most of these crowd sales are, are aiming to raise a lot more. Saying you can't spend a thousand bucks ensuring that that money doesn't get stolen, either stolen by an outsider or even worse, stolen because the one person ran away with it. That's really not an excuse. Uh, if you don't know how to do it, you hire a consultant to do it for you. And you wait until you're ready with all of that technology and you've got secure governance in place. You've tested it. You know you can use it. You know all of the signatories know how to use it and can get it again and again. And then you start your crowd sale because governance comes first. I was just about to say something really similar to what you just said, Andreas. And I totally agree. Like multi-sig has lowered the cost of security such that you can get a lot more security for the same amount of effort than you used to be able to get. So I was just doing this um, talk with Jonathan Mohan at a Bitcoin conference, beginner Bitcoin basics type stuff. One of the things that we covered was just like very basic security. The principle on that is like, don't spend $10 worth of time and effort to secure $10 worth of Bitcoin but don't spend $10 worth of time and effort to secure a million dollars of Bitcoin either. You want to spend more, right? Like you put more effort into securing larger amounts exactly. and the smaller amounts you just in a convenient way so that you can access it when you need some pocket change or whatever. But multi-signature technology really just lowers that cost of adding additional security so that you can get a lot more security for your buck, so to speak. And there are a number of companies already using this technology with well-thought-out governance plans, companies that have their accounts receivable going directly into multi-sig, that have their treasury funds with their investors' money in a multi-sig address, that have separation of duties among multiple directors in the company and a process for identifying who authorized and who signed for each, that have escrow signatories and third parties who can step in in the case someone is incapacitated, Companies that can ensure that the operating budget only contains the amount that's needed to operate the company for a short period of time so that the rest of the funds are securely protected by the signature. And there are lots of companies that not only do this comfortable to their investor, the fact that their funds are well cared for. And there's no reason I mean, why your company can't do this. There are experts out there you can hire to tell you how to do it. Who are some of these companies? Because maybe we should just call them out and say, good job. Ethereum is, is one of them. I mean, their crowd sale involved not only a multi-signature receiving address, but also a multi-tiered M of N plan, which required two of three regions to agree for release of funds. And within each region, two or three operators uh, to agree to create the vote of the region. Uh, essentially a two-tier structure. So they have their operations in three different locations primarily. 
and within those locations they have three people in each location so you would need at least four people two from each of their two locations to agree in order to get any funds released and so they've got both geographic diversity as well as control diversity recoverability of funds and accountability all of these plans are made public there are other companies one of the companies i advise and i'm making that as a disclaimer to say that i'm advising this company coin simple which has raised a small amount of money for its initial funding round and they're decentralizing payment processing they have a full multi-signature corporate governance plan in place all of the investor funds are held in a multi-signature address and they only disperse the operating uh, budget every time they need to pay for a month's expenses. So there are companies out there doing this. This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to spend Bitcoins right from your browser. Today's magic word is open. That's O-P-E-N, open. You've got until the 19th of November to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Here's the recipe for dealing with accusations of fraud. Uh, Here's how it should work. If you're accused of fraud and your company is handling other people's money, what you should do is double down on transparency and accountability and provide a full accounting of where the funds are, who controls them, how they're controlled, and what your operational plans are to ensure that those funds are secure on behalf of the people who have entrusted you with their money. Here's how it actually plays out. Uh, Someone accuses someone of mismanaging money in a company, at which point the person being accused becomes defensive, says that they are being slandered, and uh, in turn turns around the accusation and attacks the messenger saying that they are, pick the accusation, jealous, greedy, a disgruntled employee, someone who wanted a bigger part of the company or whatever that is. And at the same time, they pile on with the idea that everyone's being mean to them, nobody understands them, their family and themselves are being threatened. And that's why they need to immediately leave the company, leave the country with all of the company's (laughs) money and disappear. That's exactly what happened with Neo and B, with uh, Danny Brewster. That's what happened with uh, Mark Carpellis, who also, you know, accused everybody who was saying that there wasn't money of being dishonest and jealous and greedy, and then promptly disappeared because he was fearing threats. We've seen this story again and again. If you see someone being extremely defensive, and instead of providing accountability for how they're managing other people's money, Instead, be all offended about how their feelings are not being considered, how everybody else is slanderous, and how they need to disappear with all of the money. Anything that's a pre-sale, you know, anything that's short on details and is promising big things without really having any evidence to back that up about how they're actually going to deliver it to you, I would be very, very skeptical, whether it's a new proof-of-stake coin with like an IPO, whether it's a crowd sale for a new technology that doesn't have a white paper, doesn't have uh, much of a website, doesn't have much of anything. If it's, you know, somebody just posts a Bitcoin forum of, hey, I'm starting this project and they've got a newbie account or whatever, or somebody who even wants you to download some software 
all of those things could be red flags. Just be careful when there's not a lot of supporting evidence. Like You really have to apply the scientific method. As Pamela said before, people get really excited about new projects in the space, but it seems to be maybe the exception rather than the rule that they work out as planned and operate in an honest fashion. I have to say I'm I'm surprised at the number of companies in this space that are able to raise money without a, an MVP, a minimally viable yeah, product. Yeah, me too. To be able to raise large amounts of money without something to show people and say, okay, this is what I'm doing. And yet in this space, I see it over and over again where people come to me and they say, I have this idea, you know, I want to do fill in the blank. How can we raise money? And my immediate response is, wait, 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 <laughs> you know, let's, let's really, really figure out what it is that you're offering. How, you know, how are you different than other people that are in the space? What exactly is it that you want to offer? And kind of taking the grand idea and then bringing it down into something small and palatable that you can actually deliver on. And I think that that's something that we'll see this industry start to evolve towards because I think there are only so many times that people can get burned by crowd sales and by not having something that's viable come out of their investments before they're going to demand that. For all of the hatred of government, in many cases, is extremely well justified. The idea that there is no reason for the rules you see around uh, securities, I, I think we need to examine that idea a bit more carefully. You know, we may all disagree about the value of governments. And in fact, most of the people in this particular industry agree that government doesn't really protect consumers when it comes to securities, when it comes to banking, when it comes to regulation. However, that doesn't mean that there's no need for regulation, or rather that these rules didn't come from somewhere. The place these rules came from was rampant, rampant fraud occurred in securities in the early days of securities issuance. Now, we have better ways of doing things with Bitcoin. Uh, we have ways to decentralize control and authority in such a way that customers or buyers of these uh, securities or crowd sales or whatever you want to call them can themselves from fraud. However, if the company that's doing the crowd sale is not decentralizing control and authority over the funds, essentially what you're saying is that that company, or specifically the person who has authority and control over the funds, should be trusted with other people's money. And the simple truth is that whenever some single person is trusted with other people's money, they ran away with that money. Every single time, they will run away with that money. So if you want people for their money, then you want to say, we don't need government we're above regulation. We don't need the regulation. This is a brave new frontier. Great. Use the tools of this brave new frontier. Use programmable control distribution with multi-signature. Diversify your control structures. Diversify authority and provide transparency over those funds. If you're not doing that, then guess what? You need regulation because otherwise I know exactly how the story ends. You run away with the money. One of the things that I really appreciate about Bitcoin and uh, the, the Bitcoin network and this whole area is that we can now look at systems and ask ourselves, why was this system put in place? Why was this rule put in place? And do we have a different solution? And as Andreas was talking a minute ago, 
you know, we look at the securities rules and many of them are just giant behemoths and they seem, you know, completely insurmountable to us average people. And then we start to really parse them out and we look at, okay, well, is there a requirement that in order for you to issue security, you have to have, you know, the name of the director? Well, that's because if we don't have their address, if they run away with the money, how are we going to get the money back? Otherwise, you know, as we're left so often in this space, we say, oh, well, this person's gone. We have no way to find them. We have no way to get the funds back. And that's okay as long as you know that that's what you're investing in. As long as you're aware that you're investing in a crowd sale or something that doesn't have that sort of protection, but you can't act as if you're a corporation and then not actually provide the protections and avail yourself of the Bitcoin ecosystem. Scams are going to continue to exist, just like altcoins are going to continue to exist, as long as they're profitable scammers or to the altcoin developers. I'm not saying that all altcoins are scams, but certainly a lot of them are. I'm just kind of comparing the two. Scams are going to keep happening as long as someone can make money from it. I mean, that's just (laughs) the way it is. As many rules as there are in place, those rules don't always work, even if they have great intentions and they're very strict. They don't always work to protect people because as long as there's that profit motive for the scammers, it's going to push things toward that direction. They're going to keep having scams. So I think the best thing that we can do is to make it less profitable for someone to be a scammer by just applying a lot of skepticism. This discussion is great because understanding the response and the PR that comes from someone who is a scammer who's trying to keep up the facade is really helpful in applying that skepticism and that reality check about whether we want to continue to give them our moral support or tacit support or we want to them out. Absolutely. And just because a company isn't following all of the quote-unquote rules doesn't mean that they're necessarily a scammer. What it means is we need to look at them and say, well, why aren't they doing that? Is there a good reason why using multisig? Probably not. Is there a good reason why you don't have a management team in place or why don't have a minimally viable product? If there is, great, that's okay. But if there isn't, I think we need to ask ourselves those critical questions. And we need sometimes to be- it seemed like there's a good reason, you know, like, yeah, I, I mean, I remember Butterfly Labs, they had all kinds of excuses about why they weren't shipping their products for a year. And a lot of them sounded pretty good and plausible. You know, their, their supply chain broke down. They didn't get this shipment of silicon from China and they had to wait and they, they're manufacturing it in Chicago and whatever, you know, just all these excuses. But applying skepticism to good sounding reasons can also be really helpful. Absolutely. Well, let's look at another hypothetical scenario. Let's say you have a company that says that through arbitrage between exchanges, they can deliver guaranteed profits on a monthly basis between Bitcoin exchanges. Now, if I'm not mistaken, the concept of guaranteed profits on a monthly basis is the very definition of a Ponzi scheme. In this particular case, if that was your guess, ding, 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 you win. Crater is one company that was uh, claiming exactly that, that based on their ability to do arbitrage between Bitcoin exchanges, they would be able to deliver recurring monthly profits to their investors. And I quote, 
Dear clients, regrettably, I have to announce the failure and closure of Bitcoin Trader. Unquote. Well, no one saw that one coming. Well, Quote said. again. While preparing yes. for the final audit result, the task we were working on for weeks now, our Bitcoin wallet has been hacked and just after exchanging all our fiat holdings with the exchange coin and transferring our entire holdings to our wallet in order to prove our solvency. It is a known fact that I personally opposed any proof of solvency, but agreed to conduct it for the sake of a few dozen small and medium investors. The hacker contacted me shortly after he took advantage of our holdings and demanded a ransom in order to transfer the coin. I have agreed to a 25% ransom of the entire sum, but haven't heard back from him for several days now. My aim was to create something based on trust, just as Bitcoin itself is based on distributed trust. Unfortunately, I must admit today I have failed. All left to do now is to declare bankruptcy with the Panamanian authorities and to hand over all relevant files and information for further investigation. Sincerely, John Carley. This is the uh, founder of BitcoinTrader.biz. So you see, you're basically screwed if you don't do proof of solvency, but it appears based on John Carley that you're screwed if you do, because then evil hackers will steal your single wallet where you put everything for proof of solvency, transparency, audit. It's not a multi-sig. We don't know why that was. And so now John Carley has to contact, you know, the hacker, probably their cousin, and ask them for the money back. It's amazing to me that people will fall for this idea that these exchanges were hacked by outsiders. This is the classic end of a Ponzi scheme. And in my opinion, it was a Ponzi. It smelled like a Ponzi. It looked like a Ponzi. All it took, sudden price of Bitcoin, and suddenly you in those returns you were re- retaining while the Bitcoin price was diving. I wonder... They have some kind of arbitrage and in place like during the time when you actually could do arbitrage last winter. Uh, here's, the, here's the thing. I mean, to do arbitrage repeatedly, you have to move more than Bitcoins. You have to move the fiat from place to place. And that's a lot harder to move in order to sustain that arbitrage. And so the idea that you can profit in a low liquidity market is a perpetual motion machine. I don't really believe you. This was the guaranteed profit that was coming out of Bitcoin Trader. Who's surprised this collapsed? I don't think people should be surprised. You, you've got all of the red flags right there. And then I, I think it is just absolutely despicable and the height of hypocrisy to blame the proof of solvency and consolidating <laughs> all the holdings in a single insecure <laughs> wallet to blame the proof of solvency for the reason this got hacked. It's, um, it's brilliant, though, really. It's brilliant, isn't it? it I is love a that line about... That I personally opposed any proof of solvency, yes. but agreed to conduct it for the sake of a few dozen small and medium investors. Ah, yeah, you busybody ninnies. It's all your fault. Look what you've done now. You took my perfectly legitimate above the board business and With guaranteed to- returns. Now, now all that's left to do is declare bankruptcy with the Panamanian authorities. <laughs> I mean, I, oh, God. You know, it's interesting that the hacker who demanded 25%, and, and although he acquiesced, is now, sorry, maybe she, he or she, is now non-responsive. That's fascinating. Why take 25% when you already have 100%? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I will give one Bitcoin to this hacker... 
if they can show proof of solvency showing in fact that all the funds they claim they had. So I'm going to call John Carley on his, oh, it was the proof of solvency that got us. Well, listen, if the hacker can prove that the exchange had all the funds they were supposed to have and do the proof of solvency audit after the fact with the stolen money on a Bitcoin address they control, I'm going to add one Bitcoin to that pot. I want to, I guess, just put a little bit of an apology out there because I think my voice was in a video, an animated video that was about this company. It's hard to have that line where you figure this is a project I'm not willing to take or whatever. I always hope people are going to apply their own due diligence to whatever they see and not just believe something because they hear my voice on a video like that or whatever. But going forward in the future, I'm going to be you know, definitely more careful about picking out these companies before I just say, yeah, I'll take that script or whatever. But I think it's really irresponsible and hypocritical to expect someone who's contracting and being paid for a single contract to provide services is not responsible for doing due diligence on every company they contract for. And if you take the fact that someone in the space who is well-known is contracting for a company as a proof of that company being, I don't know, solvent, responsible, reputable, to be trusted, etc. That's a ridiculous concept. Keep in mind, as a contractor, you're taking a bet that you're going to deliver these services and hopefully they're going to pay you. And every time you do that, there's a small risk the company isn't going to pay you for the services. Yeah, and, 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 they, then you- and they did pay me. And, and thank you. I appreciate that, Andreas. And you're right. Like, it's not an endorsement or whatever. I do try to have standards for myself about who I'll contract with, though. I mean, I don't accept jobs for religious institutions or governments because I'm an atheist and an anarchist. And so (laughs) I don't want to accept jobs for scammers either. But you're right. It's really hard. Is it included in my responsibility for doing a one-liner on a video that I don't really even have time to check out because the pay is not really worth it that much? Like, do I have to go and audit them? No, I don't think so. But do want to just take some responsibility for that and, and just let everybody know that I'm just going to try to do better going forward. That's very big of you. And that's really very honest of you. But I still will say that it is hypocritical to say, do the due diligence for money I invested in this company. But it's Stephanie's fault because she didn't do the due <laughs> diligence just for a voiceover. I mean, that's just basically ridiculous. You shouldn't be held to that kind of standard just as a service contractor. And and remember that many times it's insiders who have been with a company for months and months and years who discover these sorts of things. So, you know, not necessarily in this exact instance, but this didn't happen overnight. These companies get investors they get in marketing because they're planning to offer some sort of service. And so the idea that a contractor who is contracted to do a specific job would have some sort of inside knowledge that the rest of us wouldn't have is absurd. In my contracts, I explicitly forbid companies that I advise from using my name. So one of the ways I tried to protect myself again is to say, you can't use my name as an endorsement for your product. And I advise you know half a dozen companies that people don't know about because they're not allowed to publicly say that, because that would be taken by many with no reason to take it that way, but they would anyway. It would be taken as an endorsement, and I, I don't want that. I've been burned before by 
people will throw my name out in order to build up their own credibility. And then, you know, someone runs away with the money and it's a problem with my reputation. But again, it's unfair for an investor to not do the due diligence and then blame a contractor for taking a job. Certainly, but we all feel bad when we hear that someone's lost their money. You know, no one wants that in this space. Everyone wants the success where we invested in this company that we believed in and they made it and we made it. You know, that's probably why a lot of us are, are in this area and in this industry. So kudos to you, Stephanie, for the public apology. <laughs> Thanks. Well, yeah, I can't anonymize my voice unless I maybe like play with the sound effects a little bit. Hello, this is Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to, you have to well, use I'm not another for name. That voiceover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, next time a scammer approaches me, I'll say, yeah, but I'm going to have to do the voice in like a Southern accent. Exactly. <laughs> don't think it's me. <laughs> right, right. Anytime you have an investment that has guaranteed returns, you should be skeptical. This is part of due diligence. And so if someone says to you, I will guarantee you'll get 5% or 10% or whatever the percent is, you should take that as a red flag and you should do extra diligence, extra scrutiny. Because in particular, when you're dealing with an arbitrage situation, I find it very difficult to believe that they could guarantee returns. That's a great thing to point out just about Bitcoin mining in general. Now, not that Bitcoin mining is a scam, but as we've covered before on the show, Bitcoin mining is designed to not really be profitable. It's designed to just be barely profitable. And only for those who can really kind of beat the crowd, it's designed to be an arms race where only the people who are more advanced than the average are going to make any kind of returns, let alone profits, you know, (laughs) after they think about what they've invested in mining hardware. I think it's well known to a lot of people who have been in the Bitcoin world for any length of time and understand mining, that it's really not worth it for individuals or really for companies, you know, unless you're going to have some giant mining plantation in Antarctica to take advantage of the natural cooling or the Nordic circle or whatever. I'm trying to picture that. That's what they do now. There's Seriously, our, our mining plantations in Siberia, in Norway, like in just these cold places to take advantage of the natural kind of cooling from the cool weather because it generates so much heat. And it's kind of a ridiculous commentary on mining that they're putting these warehouses in Siberia and things like that. So it does make sense. Yeah. If you're going to invest in someone who's mining and they say they're located in the Caribbean or the British Virgin Islands, you have to go, hmm. Things that make you go, yeah. (laughs) I know the British Virgin Islands is a popular destination for incorporating um, Bitcoin companies. Exactly. But maybe maybe not the place to put your mining farm. But about Bitcoin mining in general, I think it's known to most people who've been in Bitcoin for a while that at this point, like you really can't strike it rich by mining. Even if you're going to buy shares in one of these big mining farms or whatever, it's probably not going to work out uh, if you're... Counting on the Bitcoin that you get by mining, by purchasing your mining contract or whatever going up, you might as well just speculate on Bitcoin. You might as well just buy Bitcoin directly instead of investing in mining and uh, and sit on that if you think it's going to go up. I guess that bears repeating just for new and maybe just joining us, mining as an individual or as a small operation for Bitcoin is not probably going to work out 
to your profitability. <laughs> exactly. There are probably ways that you could spend your time and money and effort more profitable at this point. In general, you know, I think we should all be aware and look for some of the red flags that occur again and again in these types of businesses. Good or worse, we're in a business that is moving extremely fast. We're in an industry that didn't exist five years ago that is disruptive, that is promising, that has this amazing technology. There are going to be a lot of innovations. Amongst all of these are opportunists who see the combination of disruptive technology and also money, especially money without borders, as a tremendous opportunity and they will take advantage of as many newbies as possible, especially since there are so many newbies. This space is growing really, really fast. Every week, thousands of people discover Bitcoin for the first time, perhaps hear stories of other people who did well with early Bitcoin investments and think they can get rich too and get rich quick with little effort, which is always a bad idea. Then they get taken advantage of by an opportunist. So red flags. You know, if you see a scheme that's that appears to be a get rich quick scheme that promises returns without risk or giant returns or that glosses over the details. If you see companies that don't seem to have products, if you people you've never heard of have any reputation or history within the community. If you see people blowing the whistle, pay attention to what they're saying. So far seen maybe one or two disgruntled people blow the whistle within quotes, people who are actually reputable and not scammers. But at the same time, I've seen a hundred whistleblowers who are absolutely bang on right about what they were saying. And the people they were accusing were in fact scammers. For the most part, someone's blowing the whistle, there's a reason. So pay attention to these signs, uh, these red flags. If you see companies that are trying to capitalize quickly and are focused on raising money uh, with very little product to show for it. You know, some of the most sophisticated and successful companies in this space deliver fantastic products without raising a single penny of money, you know, and survive a year or two year shoestring budgets before they started raising money and delivered fantastic products. If you can't deliver a product that you're eager to raise money, well, that's a really bad sign. That's a big red flag, especially in the space. There are so many people willing to work either for free or willing to work for equity that you should be able to build a team, provide your vision and get people excited enough to give you some of their labor and, and think as a team. If you start with fundraising instead, that's usually a bad sign. I love what you just said there. Totally agree. It's hard sometimes we want a network that we can trust, right? Because for so much of our evolutionary history, that was how we survived was by being a part of a group and being accepted by that group and being able to trust a small circle of other people, you know, up to 150 people says Dunbar, right? You know, when we apply that to the broader Bitcoin community, it can be really difficult to override that wiring, that programming and just not be so credulous, you know, just really question everything. But that's kind of what needs to be done. You know, I'm not perfect at it. None of us here are perfect at that. But we're trying and we're trying to be conscious and aware of what's going on around us in the space and just apply some temperance. Don't send that Bitcoin right away. Wait, wait on it overnight or whatever. Think about it. Run it by somebody else before you make the decision because Bitcoin transactions are irreversible. So <laughs> once you've sent it, it's gone. 
One more thing I wanted to say about what you just said, Andreas, was the idea of volunteers. I really think there are a lot of people in this space that are willing to put their work and their time into projects for little or no pay or for the promise of pay down the line. And that actually is another form of being taken advantage of. It's like another way you could potentially be taken advantage of. I know a couple of people in this space at least who claim that, you know, they put a lot of volunteer work and effort into a project and then they did not get the promised returns once that project had its crowd sale or whatever. And so before you commit your enthusiasm and your moral support and your time to a project, diligence is also in order, you know, at least about the people that you're working with and the plan for how the project is going to be evolving. That can be a way that people get really burned out and protecting yourself from that burnout so that you can work on other projects down the line that maybe you are really excited about and maybe they're your own projects is important because we don't want to see smart, talented people get burned out and not do important projects later on down the line that they could have worked on if they weren't burned out. I agree, Stephanie. You know, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs in this space, people that are working on a number of different projects. And the best advice that I can give you is write it down. You can do it in an email. It doesn't have to be a formal contract, although ideally that would be great. It doesn't have to be a 10-page document, but write it down if you can get it signed. Even electronic signature is great, but just the general terms, because I think a lot of times people misunderstand maybe, or maybe things aren't clear what the actual expectations are. And while it's uncomfortable at first, it really is better in the long run for both the individual contractor as well as the company. Because if you've got a good fit work and project, you don't want to lose that person because there was a misunderstanding. So, And just because you're a volunteer, you're still making an agreement with absolutely. someone. Absolutely. And that's what a lot of people forget is just because you're not getting compensated per hour or per project doesn't mean that there aren't expectations. And so especially if you have an expectation of equity at some point, you need to get that in writing to protect yourself and also so that the company is protected so there aren't misunderstandings. Thanks for listening to episode 162 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Pamela Morgan, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show is provided by Jared Rubens and The New Time. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.